The word mandi, as I mentioned last Sunday, comes from the Latin word mandate. And Jesus, in this chapter, which has just been read, gives a new command later on in the text. Jesus, after he dismisses Judas, says, A new command I give you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you. But Jesus' definition of love is, is different than what typically passes for love. And it's hard to grasp. So I thought in this evening's message I would give a couple of examples from headlines as a way of, of helping us to get our arms around what he has in mind. And I think the main theme of this message this, tonight, this short devotion that I'm going to give, is essentially this. I'll say it in a word. Uh, Judas isn't as different from us as we would like to think. That's my point. Last month, Michael McClendon, a man with no criminal record, began his day by shooting his mother and her four dogs. He then burned down her house, went to a nearby town to shoot and kill his grandmother, grandfather, aunt, uncle, as they sat on the porch. And in the end, in less than an hour, he had killed 10 people in three towns across a 24-mile area in southeast Alabama. Media reports said that a killer, the killer had a hit list of people with whom he was angry. Yet interviews indicate that Mr. McClendon was well-liked and at work was a reliable team leader. He had no history of mental illness. He had not broken up in a relationship and was thought to be, quote, a nice, quiet kid. Well-liked, a reliable team leader, a nice, quiet kid, no criminal record. If there was any description of someone that you would call a good person, that would be it. If that's good, how can such a good person do such a bad thing? Such murderous tirades are beyond what most of us experience in our own lives. It's beyond what most of us even think about. But it would be a grave mistake to pretend that such people are categorically different from the rest of humanity. The Christian doctrine of original sin is offensive. It's offensive especially to people who are outside the Christian faith and, and have questions about what this, the Christian story is all about. But as offensive as the, as the doctrine of original sin is, it is inclusive. It knows no favorites. And related to this doctrine is a phrase called total depravity, which holds that while human beings are not all as famous in their sins, all human beings are equally sinful through and through. Imagine this, if you have a cup of clear water and you drop a single drop of poison in that clear water, you wouldn't serve it to a child. That's what we mean when we say that all people are sinners. Another example, though Terry Sedelechek had no criminal record and lived in an upscale neighborhood, he wrote in his day planner across Sunday, March 8, 2009, the words, Death Day. 
He arrived early at the Maryville First Baptist Church with enough ammo to kill 30 people, and in the end, only the pastor was murdered because his gun jammed. Friends described Terry as a quiet teen who helped keep his family's restaurant. Police still aren't sure what the reasoning was. I want people to know that this is a good community. Things like this don't happen, said Mary, Mayor Larry Gulledge, who has known the pastor for 25 years. Quiet teens aren't supposed to do that kind of a thing. Shoot a pastor in the middle of a worship service in a good community on a Sunday? As shocking as this species of human being is, I'm calling this species a rampage killer. The genus is common to every one of us apart from divine grace. God's story is that man has fallen from perfection. He is irreparably broken. He cannot be put to put back together again. We're coming together this evening to commemorate the Last Supper. And I mean the Last Supper. So this is the, the remembrance of and the rec- recollection of Jesus' actual last meal on earth. And in that meal, he was betrayed. I thought of the painting by Leonardo da Vinci, the one where you have the disciples around the table, the the famous portrait of the Last Supper. And in that painting, there's one character, one figure who stands apart from the rest. It's Judas. And rightly so. Judas would betray Jesus, a betrayal that would ultimately result in Jesus' political murder and Judas' own death by suicide. In every headline murder, what do they ask? Why? What was the motive? And in in the early reporting of all of these cases that have come out in the last several weeks, these rampage shootings across the country, the early reporting always says, police still aren't sure of the motive. In Judas's case, he was discovered to be stealing from the disciples' petty cash fund. So there was some motive there. But you might think, as I did, why would anybody steal from Jesus? I mean, that's like stealing from your mom or stealing from your kid. But for all of Judas's creative accounting, until that night that he left to betray Jesus, the Bible says that the devil had not yet entered into him. Judas was not fully possessed of the devil until after that night. Beyond the text that was read, we see in John chapter 13, verse Let's see. Verse 27, after Judas had taken the morsel, after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Up until that time, and this was in the passage that was read, we read in verse 2 of chapter 13, the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas to betray Jesus. You see, there was diabolical ideas, devilish schemes, that the, that the devil had tempted Judas to think about and to plan and to mull over, but Judas himself was not possessed of the devil until after that evening. I think this is significant. I think the suggestions that the devil gave Judas were the same suggestions that the devil gave the other two disciples, James and John, when they were arguing about who should be the greatest among them. 
They were actually, the, earlier in Scripture, it says they were literally jockeying for a political position in Jesus' new administration. You know, the earthly messianic reign that everyone was expecting. I think that the same diabolical suggestions that the devil had put into Judas's mind, he had also put into Peter's mind. When Peter stood in Jesus' way and said, you're not going to Jerusalem to die. And Jesus, seeing the origin of these thoughts and this conviction of Peter, literally called him a Satan, which in Greek means the enemy. Peter was the devil in that moment. It's true. Judas's specific sin led to stealing and conspiring to murder. And it's true that the, that the, that the rage and the dysfunctionality and the, and the broken families and whatever else of, of serial killers or rampage killers leads, leads to many innocent death. But if we're honest, if we stop, and recognize what's behind that, the pride and the self-centered character, the basic problem of these men is the same problem that we have. It's the same. We all are stuck on serving ourselves rather than serving God. So after Judas is possessed of the devil, he leaves. And the text is interesting. It highlights the time of day. Did you notice that? It is night. It was night. And if, you're, if you have a dramatic personality, and I have a little bit of a dramatic personality, I like that. I like the setting, right? It was night. We want the setting to fit, and it, and it does in the providence of God. And then, and then there's something that doesn't fit. There's something that doesn't fit in verse 31 of chapter 13. When Judas had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified. Excuse me? Glory? It was night. This is death. We know what's happening. I thought that that this is the time of the shame of Christ, the glory of Christ, not the glory of Christ. The defeat of God, not his victory. How can Jesus bring glory to God now if he's going to the cross? Now, it's not death Sunday, it's death Friday. But what's amazing is that Jesus tells us that death Friday is glory Friday. Because in Jesus' death, God will be just He will punish the sins of his people. He will will address every infraction of his law. He will not overlook one jot or one tittle of the broken law that he set before us. And yet he will also, in Jesus, be the justifier of the guilty by reckoning to them the righteousness that they never had, by setting free criminals and by causing an innocent man to suffer a criminal's death. We look at human tragedies as have happened recently, for example, the one in New York and elsewhere, and I was shocked. Shocked. But my shock, I think our shock, can separate us from the simple message of the Last Supper. A price must be paid 
for the wrongs that had been committed. Wrongs committed not only by Judas, not only by rampage killers, notorious murderers in our day, but wrongs committed by ordinary people like me, like you. Measured by ourselves, measured by oneself, you come out looking pretty good. Taking a gun and killing 13 people who are in a citizenship class, that's pretty bad. If we were to place that somewhere on the planet, we'd maybe drop that at the bottom of the Marianas Trench, seven miles under the surface of the ocean. And then if we, if we work really hard and live a, a, a very pious life of, 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 of innocence and sanctity, we might find ourselves at the top of some mountain on the planet in terms of the geography of our spirituality. But the problem with that kind of measurement is that in comparison even to our most righteous acts, God is far beyond even the reaches of our galaxy. And so that from where God sits, we're next-door neighbors. In conclusion, with murder and mayhem in the headlines, some people are asking, how could good people do such bad things? But I think this original question needs to be rephrased. I think we need to shift what a lawyer might call the burden of proof. The question is rather, how can such broken people, as we all are, how can we possibly do anything good? In three days, Jesus will answer this question for us. But for now, it is our calling to contemplate our condition that apart from God's intervention, we would only seek our own glory. In the early church, Augustine argued that there are many sheep outside and many wolves inside. I think that was true of the twelve. I certainly think that's true today of all of us at one point or another. We are all wolves. We are all Satans, if you will, Satanas, enemies of God, enemies of the cross. We impose ourselves between Jesus and his mission, and we say, no, Lord. And he says, get behind me, Satan. We all have gone astray, as our scripture has said. What's remarkable, then, is not that we do bad things. What's remarkable is that we do any good at all. What's remarkable is that Jesus went to the cross not for decent people, not for mediocre people. He went to the cross for broken people, for sinners, for wolves, for murderers. As Paul writes in Romans 5, while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, one would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We are not righteous. We are not good. We are sinners, traitors, Judases, broken to the core, self-centered, bent beyond repair. This is an accident where the automobile is totaled. Only a radical, bloody, wrathful, unjust death of a perfect God-man could possibly begin to correct our deep alienation from our holy God.
That man is Jesus. Let us pray. How we thank you, Lord Jesus. And yet, it's hard even to thank you at times when we are confronted so starkly with our sin. We are like Job. We put our hands over our mouth. We have nothing to say. We're like the preacher who counsels us to draw near to listen and not to speak. Your sentence is just. We have evaded it too long. We say yes, 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 Lord. Please hear us. Please have mercy on us, we ask through your holy, precious name. Amen.